What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Boss is here! Military parents never miss a beat, and neither does the Johns Hopkins U.S. Family Health Plan. Built for every warrior in your family. With more than 40 years of service to military families, TRICARE Prime Benefits plus exclusive extras. Learn more at warriorsathome.com. We made this. Ladies and gentlemen, it was a cold-blooded, premeditated murder. everyone and welcome to a special episode of red the red and buried podcast helpful if i got the name right of my own podcast uh, i'm frankie and unfortunately i'm without sarah today but the good news is i'm with the very exciting and interesting greg moss instead hi greg love that introduction thank you frankie <laughs> how are you doing i'm very well thank you very much it's a hectic time of course when your book comes out and it yeah. just so happens that i'm running also some west end showcases from my script development program at the moment so it's all go. You're a non-stop party shop, aren't you? You've got everything going on all at the same time. Well, that leads me nicely. I've written a little bio about you, as is tradition on this podcast, and I've taken it all from the internet. So obviously it's all correct and accurate, fingers crossed. That sounds very you dubious, can... but let's, I'll roll with it. <laughs> you can tell me if it's horribly wrong, but here we go. Greg's first career was in the theatre as an actor, director and writer. He lived and worked in Paris, New York, Los Angeles and Madrid, having worked as an interpreter at a variety of international institutions. In 2015, Greg returned to theatre. Since then, he has written and produced 25 plays and musicals. He's also the founder and leader of the Criterion New Writing Script Development Programme at the Criterion Theatre London, giving free opportunities in script development to a diverse community of writers, actors and directors. During 2020's lockdown, Greg took the opportunity to fulfil a long-term ambition to write a powerful thriller, and the result is The Coming Darkness, a climate-based sci-fi thriller described as Blade Runner meets John le Carré, which is out on the 10th of November and published by Moonflower Books. Greg is also the husband of international best-selling author Kate Moss, who he first met when they were just 16 years old. Is that correct? I, I love the way that the most important thing is at the end. That's brilliant. <laughs> Obviously, it's all important. It's so hard to get it all in at the top spot. But I, I, I caught a bit of the article that you and, and Kate wrote with the Times about your relationship and how you start. You met when you were 16. Is that right? That's absolutely right. I was standing on stage at a, a joint school production, you know, the girls school and the boys school. Oh, yes. I was I was singing one of the lead roles in Offenbach's La Vie Parisienne, which is a very old fashioned operetta wow. from uh, from the sort of turn of the century. And next to me was my friend John. And my friend John, being a 16-year-old boy, the only thing that really interested me was all the girls he fancied. And so he was telling me about them, one after another. And because he was a 16-year-old boy, it was a list of all the girls he'd ever met. <laughs> <laughs> discerning tastes at 16 <laughs> exactly eventually though he did reach his um he did reach the end of his list of names and he said but greg my goddess my goddess greg is kate moss and i said who's that john 
and he pointed down into the orchestra where this immensely pretty, very smart-looking 16-year-old girl was playing the violin, and it was indeed Kate Moss. And so that was how I met her, on the recommendation soon retracted by my friend John. <laughs> you stole her from your friend I know, John. I know. But to be fair, they were they were never a thing. So yeah. you know Sneeze you lose, John. There You'll you go. Move. Keep it yeah, to yourself, right? <laughs> exactly. Don't point out goddesses and expect people not to snap them up. Exactly. My God. <laughs> That's going to excite the interest of anybody. That's brilliant. What a story. And God, how long have you been married to Kate now? Well actually we didn't marry until quite a lot later. I'm sort of trying to to think back to when it must have been. I think it was two thousand 2003. And it was really a result of our children becoming sort of independent people in the world and wanting yeah. them to have that um, security. There are, there, you know, there are financial and boring tax yes. implications to being <laughs> married that benefit your children. I think that was really all it was. We were already, I think, as secure an item as any couple can be. Yeah, it is just a bit of paper at the end of the day, but you're right. It does just, it's that that old-fashioned bit of paper that our government and country just love for people to have to benefit. Yes, children, I mean, I'm, I'm not against marriage by any means, but it, it seems to me that the, the celebration of marriages, whether, you know, religious or humanist or whatever, could function without the change in legal status. Mm. They could be entirely separate things and we could all exist, you know, legally as citizens with the same rights. And then there wouldn't be this, these difficult what questions that some people find difficult mm. about the recognition of marriage of same-sex couples, for example. Yeah, absolutely. There's so many interesting things. Sorry, talk I've about digressed here. terribly. <laughs> no, it's my. I love it. I find it fascinating. But really, we are here to talk about you and your book. I've been reading and am loving. It's incredibly Thank exciting. Thank you, Frankie. Really, really enjoying it. So, if you could maybe just give a very. I'm sure you've given a hundred of these already to various people. But if you could give a very brief overview of the book for our listeners, that would be wonderful. It's it's in a sense it's a James Bond style novel in that at the heart of it is Alexandre Lamarck who is an agent of the French security services and what Alex discovers early on is that the orders he's being given mean that he can't possibly see himself as the good guy and if he isn't if the orders he's being given or, or, although perhaps they mean well if they aren't for the greater good then what's he doing fulfilling them now, that's where he starts. But of course, the trouble is he is in an incredibly important position at the heart of this web of knowledge that only the security services can amass. And it puts him in this privileged place where he can see coming a potentially disastrous, globally disastrous event that it becomes his duty to try and stop. Wow. Powerful stuff. Thank you. <laughs> really exciting. So, I mean, there's a lot I want to unpack here with that because there's so many different elements. The first one, probably the most impressive part being that you were um, incredibly, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, efficient and productive during lockdown. That's impressive. Well, weren't you? <laughs> Come on, I bet you were. Uh, well, no, no, I didn't write a, a thrilling uh, climate-based sci-fi thriller, if that's what you mean. To be but... fair, do you remember that thing that people were talking about that Shakespeare in lockdown wrote King Lear? I'm not suggesting that the coming darkness <laughs> is King Lear, but it is, I hope, you know, 100,000 words or just under of, you know, dynamic, fast-paced action, convincing characters, um, big set pieces, unusual things, things that perhaps people haven't thought about. Because, of course, when you sum up a novel, you... You sort of sum it up in a different way every time you talk about it. And I realized that just then I didn't say 
set in 2037. <laughs> yes. Because, of course, yes. what, I, what I want people to uh, find in the imaginary world of the coming darkness is um, a landscape that they recognize because it's like today, but more so. All the things mm. that we worry about are more intense, more, more deeply felt, more concerning. And of course, if you think back to lockdown, that's what we were all doing, wasn't it? We were yes. trying to imagine a future when we came out the other end of this extraordinary tunnel. Yeah, no, you're right. Absolutely. And obviously, the environmental elements of your book, the climate focus parts, also quite, even though this is set far in the future, very real and very present in today's society. What inspired this this approach to a thriller for you? It's quite chilling, isn't it? When you yes, <laughs> when you when you add up all of the challenges that we face, when you, you think about mm. population movements due to war or famine or drought or flood or fire, and you can't escape the biblical resonance of all of those all of those terrible tragedies for. Mm sort of faceless numbers of humans, but who are each of them an individual individual valued life. And that, that's related as well, isn't it, to lockdown and the steps that, mm. uh, that we all tried to take in order to save as many lives from that novel virus. Um, I think um, when I started writing, I had an idea that I might set it in 2048. And I bet as a as a book person, you'll recognise that that's in homage to George Orwell because yes. he wrote 1984 in 1948. But I realised that a whole generation ahead, you know, 25, 26 years, was too far. I didn't mm. want to take it. I wanted you and I as readers of it to be thinking, well, this actually is just around the corner and mm. it's coming up fast. And, and therefore, these things, I hope, the themes in the background, the pressures that are on Alex from the wider world of the novel, that they're worth thinking about too, beyond the character's individual needs and desires. Yeah, absolutely. Even though it's set in the future, it feels very close and disturbingly, terrifyingly close in a lot of ways. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's good. It's, it's, you know, it's important for, you know, as, as, as the book is really enjoyable and, you know, it, from a, a, an action kind of thriller perspective, very exciting, but it's important to, you know, still give an important message with the book. And I definitely feel like you have in, in a way that is, makes it compelling. I hope so. Yes, absolutely. And it, it's, not, it's not a depressing read by any stretch for people listening. No, well, a thriller can't end in universal tragedy, can it? No. <laughs> that, that, that would be no. a betrayal of the genre. Yes. And, and in fact, when I'm, when I'm working with uh, playwrights and TV screenwriters, it's something that often comes up. We often look at one another and we say, well, we could let everything end badly. We could let this be a tragedy, but it would actually be cleverer if out of all the misunderstanding, the malintent and the confusion, we can make a plausible and satisfying happy ending. That seems yeah. to me a greater writing challenge than, than tragedy ever is. That's so true, because I think we, we experience enough tragedy in the world around us that doesn't seem to have a happy ending. I think you, you're, as a viewer or a reader, you want to have that kind of cathartic, satisfying ending. And, it, and you're right, it's a, there's a skill in rounding up a series of tragedies and making it a nice, satisfying, happy ending to mm. a degree. So I completely agree. And you mentioned your script writing and your programs there. You obviously have written for a number of different mediums at this point, which is incredible. How have you found the process of writing a novel versus, say, writing a script or writing for the theatre? Now, that is a superb question. And what I discovered as I, I, I write quite early, I write sort of between six and 10 in the morning, and then the rest of the day is whatever else has to be done. 
And as I sit there in my glorious solitude in my study, I realized that the shape of the thing that I was writing was a bit like a a continuing drama series, a bit like, I don't know, something like Lost or Homeland or, you know, again, thriller structure. Mm. So it was, it's informed in a way by dramatic writing because it sort of comes out in chunks in units as if the the 90,000 words or the 98,000 words of the novel were a sequence of one act plays almost not exactly like Interesting. that but like that and and I think that's quite helpful to a writer to see that because a novel is too much to hold in your head all at once all the details you can't possibly have it all in the front of your mind but if the novel divides into these dramatic sequences 12 or 15 of them across the whole of the novel then it's it's easier to work on and to and to polish i think and and i must say here when we talk about polishing you, you might like this this is this is how it goes so i wrote first draft for me which was far 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 too long <laughs> then i wrote a second draft for my wife kate moss to read which was still far too long <laughs> given her notes i wrote a third draft that was still too long and showed it to my agents who are wonderful people I edited it once more, obviously, to send it to my publisher and the editor at Moonflower, Christy Doherty, who yes. told me how to edit it further. And finally, that made a fifth draft wow. that we could copy, edit and proofread. Uh, you know, all of those technical things need to be done. Wow. And you might find it quite shocking to think that there I was in my chair in the corner of my study each morning. And I ended up with almost 170,000 words in order to publish a novel of 98,000 words. Wow. <laughs> that is a journey. Yeah, I think I on. needed the editorial process earlier, but hey-ho. <laughs> <laughs> you live and learn, right? Exactly. And it sounds like you're surrounded by very helpful and benevolent influences to help you with that process. Like, what a dream. Yeah, that is absolutely true. It's when I work with, uh, I, I will be, I'll be at um, the Bridport Festival this weekend working with uh, writers who are more emerging writers uh, early in their writing journey. And I know that there is an enormous, or it feels like an enormous gulf between being inside and being outside the fence. Mm. And I, I know that people find that discouraging. And what I say in reply is that publishers and agents are unemployed without writers. Because they've got nothing to put out. But writers are never unemployed. We can always be writing something new, polishing our craft, getting better at what we do. That's a really wonderful way of looking at it because it can feel often, I, I mean, for aspiring writers, that maybe if there's not an an end in sight for it, that, that there's there's no point in continuing. But you're right, it's that honing of the craft and the development of your own style, I imagine, is, is a reward in itself without a publication necessarily. It takes an incredibly long time some, for some writers for their unique, authentic, creative voice to emerge. I think um, un- unless we're very lucky, uh, our first writing is probably influenced by books that we love more than it is by what we have inside. And of course, the only thing in the end that we have to sell that's different from what everybody else has got is that unique, individual, authentic, creative voice. You've made the point perfectly. but And it's, I suppose, maybe as the more you write, the more confident you feel in it, in exploring that voice and, and having the... Because it, it's a scary thing to share a creative piece of work with anybody. True. So I guess maybe that hopefully the development of the voice comes with the comp- and the confidence builds with the more you write. Would you say, have you found that to be? I, th- I think that's true. And it's another benefit of having worked so much in theatre, mm. uh, because there we are in our room together, uh, myself, my words, director, actors. 
And then abruptly, one Thursday evening, there's an audience watching it <laughs> and responding or not responding. And yeah. And you, you have to learn to take that in your stride. You, you have to be sure that what you have made is worth making. And if you don't quite land it for the audience, it doesn't mean that it's worthless. Yeah. It, it just means there's more to be done. Yeah, that's, that's a fantastic way of doing it. And what instant feedback you get from having an audience. In front oh, of totally, you, Frankie. Yeah, absolutely. I can imagine that could be quite terrifying, but also gratifying. Oh, enormously. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. As we, um, I had a show um, called The Unquiet Grave that I wrote with my composer partner because it was a play with songs. And it was uh, a couple of actors in it who were wonderful actors that I'd worked with a number of times before. And it was programmed and it was delayed and it was delayed again and it was delayed again. And finally, the summer of 21, there it was being produced and uh, a sold out audience, 300 people, an open air theater on a summer evening. And it was all worth waiting for because that it's funny. The word I always use is invigorating, you know? Yeah. All those people together in a space sharing a unique creative experience because the audience is part of the creative experience too. Mm invigorating. So that must be a real dynamic kind of shift for you going from that to writing alone. Yes, I miss it for sure. And the other thing, Frankie, I bet you can see this because um, the, the way that you work is you're, you're constantly creating wonderful new content. That's something you get in theatre. I can write a new show and three months later, if I, 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 can, I can have it on in a, in a venue, you know, I'm, mm. I'm only limited by the resources that I've got to put into it to hire the space and hopefully get the money back from the ticket sales. So you can turn it around very quickly and you can be moving on to the next, the next collaboration. Mm. And it, yeah, it provides great energy. Yeah, I, I imagine. And publishing, although wonderful, is occasionally a little slow in that respect, right? It you is. Start a long time ago to get to this point. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And an example of that is I started I started a, another writing project with another uh, publishing colleague of mine before all of those lockdowns. So before February 20, which will see the light of day next July. Wow. So that's that well that's that's three and a half years, isn't it? From sort of start to finish. It's so hard to say because time has no meaning anymore. There you're right. <laughs> especially after the last three years. But wow, that will be especially gratifying. Yeah, who is it who said there's no Monday or Friday, there's just day? <laughs> so true. <laughs> Painfully true. <laughs> You've touched a little bit about on your writing process. And the question we always ask um, authors that come on is, what do you enjoy most and least about the writing process? Well, I'm, I'm happy to say that I enjoy all of it. I'd, I'd say this, the creation and exploration of the imaginary world is the easiest part. I think of it um, as, so you write your first line and it's like this point in space. And from that, you open out into a full depiction of the imaginary world. And that, that's great. And exploring it, and you, you have relatively few limitations, especially if you're setting your work a little bit in the future or, um, mm. or in an imaginary world altogether, one that we've never experienced, but outside of your book. Okay, then what happens is what Louise Doughty once said to me was the long middle of the book. And in the long middle, what happens is your, your book drills down into character, motivation, conflicting desires, a deepening understanding of the, the sort of panoramic dramas and circumstances that surround your characters. And you can hear from what I'm saying, that, that that clearly requires, what did Joseph Conrad call it? Mature reflection. Yeah, it's 
It's the things that you ponder whilst you're washing up or walking the dog or gardening or whatever and suddenly you think, oh my God, yes, that's it. And that idea then shapes two or 3,000 words that you next write. Wow. Finally, there's the last part. The last third or the last quarter of your book is determined, isn't it, by everything that's gone before. So you're almost trapped. The only way that your book can finish is by bringing all of those elements that are still in suspense and unresolved to a unifying climax. And that is, of course, the hardest work. Yeah. <laughs> to say the least, yes. right? <laughs> yes. And when you were writing this, you found that to be very much your experience. Getting to that end point was the, the toughest part. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you ask, if you ask a, a hundred writers, many of them will say to you, what I thought was going to be the last 25 pages was the last 75 pages. Yeah. Because there's... Because you want to give every drama that you've created, you want to give full value to its resolution and outcome. And um, and you can only do that with words on the page. Very true. Yeah. Otherwise, you're going to have some very unhappy readers. <laughs> when it That's just falls right. off. I, Frankie, it, I, I totally agree. And what it is, I think, is if I've made you pay attention to something in my novel, imagine mm. it, see it evolve, wonder why it's happening and who's involved. Well, the resolution of that storyline has to be powerful enough to merit all of that attention that you've given it. No pressure or anything. No, obviously. none at all. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously, you are a reader. I can see a number of books behind you. Yes, and not that I'm not that I'm. Peaking. No, you're you're allowed to spy. That's that's why we do. That's why we have cameras on. That was the best part of Zoom for the last three years is seeing into people's houses. It, it? is. <laughs> In a non-voyeuristic sort of, of way. Of course. Of course. Uh, so you are obviously a big reader. And what was the last book that you read and loved? Well, interestingly, um, the project that um, I was talking about that, that will emerge next summer that's not yet been announced, mm. I got to the end of the copy edit of that and I picked up a book off a shelf, which I hadn't read for years and years, which was, well, I, I think one of the, the most important novels I've ever read, which is 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Colombian journalist and author. It, it has its own story. The, the copy that I took off the shelf was the, um, a, a, an academic edition, effectively, a, a Spanish academic edition of Cien Años de Soledad. And I bought it in Paris when I was um, living and working there as an interpreter. And I'd already read it in English and thought that it was wonderful. And then I'd read it in French a few years later and thought this is better still. And it was the reason that I began studying Spanish, so that I could eventually read that book in Spanish as well. And it wow. is the, so far, it's the only book that I've read in all three languages. I did start the first Harry Potter novel in, um, in Spanish when I was on holiday in Tenerife one time, but I, I got away late by the sangria and the swimming pool. <laughs> Understandable, these things Exactly. Happen. And that's, you've casually just mentioned that you've read a book in three different languages. So you speak French, Spanish and English? Yes. You've noticed the English. Do you know what, Bruce, you know what Bruce good. Willis says in Die Hard? I only speak two yeah. languages, English and bad English. <laughs> <laughs> but you speak good English from, from my, my amateur ears. Has languages always been a thing for you? Were you? Did you grow up in a bilingual household or has it just always been an area that you've wanted to grow and develop? It happened almost by chance. When I, when I was working uh, out of university in French theatre in London in the early 1980s, I discovered that 
I couldn't um I couldn't see myself having a long career in which you get 19 or 19 rejections for every 20th acceptance you know auditioning and all of that stuff and so I thought well I, a change must come I went to Victoria station with all my belongings on my back in a rucksack with the intention of going to Edinburgh, it was summer, for the Edinburgh Festival. I thought I'd meet people, I'd get a job on some theatrical production, and then I'd see what would happen next. And when I arrived at Victoria Coach Station, I discovered that the night bus to Paris was cheaper than the wow. bus to Edinburgh. And not only that, Frankie, but the night bus to Paris would arrive the following morning at seven o'clock on the dot in Place Stalingrad. And I thought that is where I must go. Wow. It was a complete chance. It was because I had all of my belongings with me, including a passport, all, all the money I had saved, and you know, and it was an opportunity to begin a new life, an unanticipated and unplanned life. So an unplanned adventure. But the moment I arrived and got off that coach at Place Stalingrad and went into the cafe opposite, and with my very halting O-level French, ordered a cup of coffee and and then pointed and said one of those <laughs> and i ate my first parisian croissant at seven o'clock in the morning and felt instantly at home isn't that lucky that's incredible i have to say night bus to paris is a great book title oh write that God. down oh yes Please, you can have that. You'll do a much better job with it than I ever could. Please write that down. Well, that has yet to be seen. <laughs> no, I'm fairly confident on that. France for you is obviously a, a very big part of your life and French. You and you set the book and you've got your French lead character. Uh, is it because you've you obviously lived there for a long time? Um, what inspired it to have the French focus to this book? I think well? it was, and you don't really know when you start, but I think it was working mm. as an interpreter in international institutions in Paris. Mm. And... And seeing the people that had secretive conversations in corners mm. and wondering what it was that they were up to. An interesting thing that I, I know now, looking back, is most of those conversations were probably about what's going to happen next. You know, yeah. um, if it was us, you know, you and I, we would be saying, well, what do you think the Soviet Union's next step will be? Do you think we can improve relations with North Africa generally and Algeria in particular? And it's all about tactics and strategy for the future. And, um, and, I, and I was there on the periphery of that as an interpreter, but, but recognizing that. Do you mind if I just go on from that? Because there's a, another aspect, which I think is really interesting. When, when you write a novel set in the future, at first, when I embarked upon it, and I, I, I I wondered if it would be easy to research the future. And actually, That's weirdly, it was. Because, of course, if you are in industry or science, technology or government in any mm. field, your focus is as much on tomorrow and the next day as it is on today. Very true. And there are people out there publishing brilliant articles in learned journals and in popular press talking about, I don't know, the car industry in five years, 10 years, 15 years, and all of that in, can inform a, a novel set in the future, just as Kate Moss's brilliant historical research gives a framework for her characters to evolve in, in her historic novels. 
Yes, that makes complete sense. You're right. And it explains how things have moved towards today. It's that acknowledgement of the past and the future to get that balance, I would think. That's right. But it is also the thing you, you mentioned earlier. It is the, the, um, the imminence and intensity of our concerns about mm. environmental degradation and the impact on human populations. That's the thing that brings the future close, isn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> Very much so. And you touched on character there for a moment. And a question we also like to ask every author that comes on is, if you had to be a character from your book, who would you be and why? Well, you'd want to be the lead, wouldn't you? Well, I, well, it depends Come if it's on. a reliable lead, but I think Alex is a pretty strong pick. <laughs> and also, it's now here's, a, here's an interesting way of thinking of it. Because Alex is so purposeful, he sort of illuminates the world for the reader. So you would definitely want to be a purposeful character. Uh, the woman that he loves, Mariam Jordan, she also is a purposeful character. Wherever mm. she goes, she reveals things to the reader. She has a different mindset from his. She has different responsibilities from his. So that's what you want. You, you wouldn't want to be a passive character that things happen to, would you? You'd want to be somebody who goes out and achieves things. That's a, that's a good point. Would you say you are a, a purposeful character in your own life? I do my best. I think you do very well. I'm just looking at your long list of achievements here on my bio <laughs> that I read and everything you're working on. So I would say you have quite a significant amount of purpose. Thank you. <laughs> it must be. Uh, how do you balance all of your various projects? Well, like I say, if if except on exceptional days, if between six and nine or 10 in the morning, that belongs to my creative writing, then that's, that's um, what you call it, ring-fenced, isn't it? That's the expression. It does mean that sometimes I, you know, the rest of life gets, you know, a, a pile of stuff in the inbox and all the rest of it. But it, it does mean that, and because that happens six days out of seven, probably, that creative time, which is mine alone, I have that sort of undercurrent of feeling, yes, I have done something for myself. And and isn't it true that if you do have something set aside for yourself, then, then you feel more comfortable with the stuff that you do for other people? Yes, I guess that makes sense. And it's important to have that balance because I think some people can go too much either way. I think you're right. Mm. I mean, Kate has the Women's Prize for Fiction and has worked on that for, well, it must be the 28th year. So with well, all the setting up, that's 30 years of essentially uh, of work, not for her, but for other people. And that's a, that's a wonderful thing, a wonderful and inspirational thing to have done. And in my small way, the Criterion New Writing Program for the development of mid-career playwrights on stage in the West End, that's, that's my major contribution there as well. I think that's incredibly as equally as impressive and important. The thing is, it's also an opportunity for me because it's an, a, a massively rewarding thing to do. And, and, and it benefits me hugely from the relationships that I create, the, the community that, that, that I'm a part of, therefore. Yeah. So I, I did the right thing setting aside that part of my life to do that, even, even though, of course, it does make life quite crowded. <laughs> that's it but you know sometimes you need a good crowd to have a good party you totally and that's do the only... <laughs> you totally do and obviously you've come from 
you know, in the theatre world, a lot of crowds there. And now you're involved in the crime writing crowd and community, which is, I, from my experience of it, my limited experience of it, a very welcome and supportive community. Immensely so. How have you found the exposure to the crime writing world since writing this book? Uh, well, like you say, incredibly supportive. But that goes back years. 20 years, no, it can't be 20 years ago, 10 or 12 years ago, I I was at the Harrogate Crime Writing, so the Theakston's Old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival. I went last year. Did you? Loved it. Yes. So, yeah. uh, do you know the uh, Creative Thursday, which mm. is a day of workshops and so on? Um, years ago, I, I, I did, um, I provided some workshops and story development sessions there. And I was back again this summer. Oh, I was there. I didn't see you. On Creative yeah. Thursday itself. I'm, <sighs> I'm, uh, then Kate and I had to go on to the Latitude Festival where we had some mm. other events. Had I known you were there, I would have sought you out. <laughs> oh, next time. Yeah, absolutely. I hope so. And what I, when people ask me, what I used to say was at, at regular writing festivals, the crime writers are like the, the cool kids standing outside smoking and drinking cans of cider, <laughs> whilst inside the tent, people are discussing the existential crisis of man and, you know, all of that <laughs> stuff, the literary thing. But I would argue that, um, well, Ian Rankin's wonderful um, sequence of Rebus novels, there's one mm. which is essentially um, about people trafficking. It's easily the best book about people trafficking that I've ever read. And it's a crime novel. There is, yeah. I, th I think, and I hope that the crime writing community has embraced the fact that they are not only successful and there's insatiable demand for more mystery writing, but also that crime writing can analyze and, and and resolve questions that are really important for society, for us as individuals, for us as a, as a community of people. That's a really, really interesting point, because often I think there is, a, and I don't, I don't subscribe to this at all, but there is a certain kind of misconception around crime writing sometimes that there's a bit of a snobbery to literature and crime writing can sometimes be seen as the trashier sort of end and you know that kind of the holiday book that you know you read by the beach and it's a bit trashy thrillery sort of thing but i think increasingly readers and authors combined are knowing are realizing that there is a lot more possibility and and development of crime in that way as you say to make it very meaningful and powerful in terms of addressing real world issues i agree and i i'd go another step actually and i think exactly what you've described mm. is also happening in fantasy fiction yes science fiction and fantasy fiction there is an understanding with the success of dramatizations on tv that have depth and um, political intrigue and convincing characterization and dynamic twisty plots that have that are full of reversals and surprises but are always convincing mm. satisfyingly plausible well i think the same thing's happening and as it happens because of that lockdown that we were talking about Mm. Uh, Kate and I have a son, Felix Moss, who is a, a wonderful and very talented West End actor. But of wow. course, he couldn't be doing that during lockdown. So what do you think he did? Did he write a fantasy book? He did write a fantasy novel. <laughs> wow. Which he's, Your family. Which he is currently editing with his agent. And it's um, I've, I've read his first draft and it's going to be a wonderful book. Your family because can you stop all being so talented and productive, please? It's making the rest of us look really bad. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. <laughs> <I understand. laughs> okay, so 
We have some questions here now. It's going to get a little bit weird okay. now, so, so bear with me. But I'm afraid I have some terrible news, Greg. I'm afraid that you've committed a crime oh. that's so heinous, so horrendous in nature that unfortunately you are being sent to death row. Right. I'm sorry to have to break this to you. What crime do you think you've committed that's led to this point? Well, I can't imagine me ever doing <laughs> something really terrible. What, of what did I do? Did I burn down a library, perhaps? Is that did what it is? Did you burn down a library? My goodness. Oh, my God. Maybe that's that was... it. Maybe my book comes out. Nobody pays any attention to it or notices. And in a fit of rage, I burn down a library. And that's such an offence to civilization that the yeah. laws of the United Kingdom are rewritten so yes. that I can, I can receive this exemplary punishment. That's what it is. It's the only way, you know, we can deter it from happening again. This is definitely work of pure fiction because your book is obviously going hey, to buzz around it already. Hey, I don't, I don't want to create a threat here, but... <laughs> <laughs> There is no threat. I think our libraries are safe okay, for the time good. being. Um, okay, so you've burned down the library have, and yes. we've brought back the death penalty just for you. Yes. So impressive achievement yet again. For a, a crime against culture. Yeah. A crime against culture and the community of, of readers. Yes. Absolutely the worst crime imaginable. But the good news is we're going to make you the death row meal of your choice. Oh. It can be anything you want and it can be made by anyone you want. What would it be? Oh, wow. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. a great one. When I first moved to Paris, I was, of course, very poor. I found myself a hotel room in Belleville, which is in northeastern Paris. At that time, it was mostly a community of Moroccan and Portuguese immigrants. And my hotel room for a month cost a thousand francs, which was a hundred pounds, about three pounds a day. Wow. <laughs> and I had the, the first because I, I come from a, a, a very, um, I come from a, a poor background. We didn't travel or anything. So I had the most, for me, extraordinary meal on the street. And I remember it so vividly because it was so utterly different from anything that I'd ever had before. You know, the um, chestnut roasting drums that you sometimes see in winter in the center of London. Yes, so it was yeah. one of those. But what was being cooked on it were the jawbones of sheep wow. and bits of sweet corn that were being roasted together on this hot plate. And I heard the, the, the guy, it was right outside the hotel front door, and I heard the guy say, how much is that? And it was something ridiculous, like 50 or 60 pence for me. And so I said, I'll have that. <laughs> <laughs> and I ate this delicious mutton from the, from the jawbone of the, of the animal. And the sweet corn, I'm sorry for vegetarians listening, and the sweet <laughs> corn that had ro been uh, roasted alongside it, and it was utterly memorable and it was an uh, like like the the more traditional coffee and croissant place stalingrad it was an amazingly vivid welcome to this new life that i had embraced so if i could replay that meal i think that's what i ought to do that is the most interesting unique answer we've had to that question that's incredible i do my best <laughs> i'm very impressed i'm gonna say well we're gonna have to go find a drum for you now <laughs> we're gonna wheel that into the prison and we will get some sheep bones and sweet corn wow that sounds amazing i would definitely try that good okay so you've had your meal you've had your beautiful jawbone sweet corn combination but unfortunately you've now been put to death i'm very sorry mm. but you know the libraries come first what are you going to do but we are now going to bury you but we'll bury you with the book of your choice to accompany you either to the afterlife or however you envisage death treating you after you've passed. What book would you be buried with? Well, because Kate and I have been together for so long, I, I've accompanied her on this very long creative journey, obviously, family journey, 
looking after our children, but also looking after three of our parents in our own home. I'd be tempted by the wonderful book that she wrote called An Extra Pair of Hands, which was about caring for, about the the two-way street of caring for an elderly person. But I think possibly more important than that is uh, her current book, which is called Warrior Queens and Quiet Revolutionaries, which is an attempt to complete history, not by taking out Genghis Khan or Charles de Gaulle or Winston Churchill, but by complementing the male-dominated view of history as a sequence of great men who did great things with over a thousand women who were also a part of history and who've been neglected. And and Kate talks about it very fluently. The, um, The women that have been written out because for malign reasons, because somebody else, generally a man, wanted to take the credit. The women who it was never noticed that they were there, and so nobody thought to write down their names. Then the women who were there, but they were seen as the exception. And she tells a brilliant story about Rosa Parks being remembered as the person who challenged the segregation laws in the southern United States. And the fact that nine months before somebody else had done that and six months before that somebody else had done that it was just that when it when the story reached rosa parks she became sort of the poster woman for that protest and all the other women who had made a similar protest were forgotten so i would i think um for all of the the importance that warrior queens and quiet revolutionaries has especially in the current climate where there are many countries in the world where anti-female legislation is rolling back hard-won rights. I think that's the book that I must take. Wow, that's a fantastic choice. And I mean, both of them. Do you know what? I'm going to let you have both of those books. You can have them both. Oh, have an extra pair of hands as well. Yeah, I'll put that in as well. We can prop prop them in. What do I care? I'm dead. I'm not going to read them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's extra kindling, I suppose. I don't know what we're doing with them. Oh, Leah, let's have a funeral pyre. Oh, I'd much prefer that to burial. (laughs) (laughs) We can do that. We can do whatever you like. Thank you. We can maybe use any of the books that didn't burn up in the original fire to to build it. (laughs) Oh, my God. Now you say that, I should have avoided death row by burning myself to death on the pyre of the library. What a fool. You live and learn, but unfortunately you don't live because you've been killed. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm sorry to say that. But I have to say another incredible thing about your marriage to Kate. Is it sometimes very difficult to be in a creative kind of partnership? Because obviously you bounce ideas off each other, you share each other's drafts and things. Does that make it difficult to maintain alongside a happy marriage? Or have you got a good balance going? We seem to. Obviously, she's not here able to confirm or deny (laughs) what I'm asserting. But we seem to have, you know, there's lots of things that we both like. We we both love our home and family. We like the countryside. We like theatre. We like reading books, you know. We like... Um, Works. Yeah, all of those things. I suppose it's the things you share, isn't it? And mm. I'm, I might also say there's, you know, when I, when I was younger, I felt, that, I felt that, that life moved quite fast. And the opposite to many people now... Lots of older people tell me it goes faster when you get older, but I don't find that at all. I find that I, I I remember something and I say to Kate, was that six weeks ago? And she said, no, that was that was 10 days ago. <laughs> <laughs> and because we're so busy and because we are more or less integrated in the different things that, that we do, mm. well, 
you know, Kate is a playwright as well. So obviously she's, she's, a, she's a part of my theatre life too. I feel that we are, that we're getting full value from the minutes and the days allotted to us. And for that reason, we, we're not boring to one another. We've always got a new thing that we're trying to do. And to a greater or lesser extent, depending on what it is, we share those things. That's wonderful. And as I say, a lot of marriages probably couldn't withstand that. So that's incredibly impressive. It probably does help that you're both very talented. <laughs> Maybe if one of you wasn't very talented and the writing was a bit poor and you had to give feedback on it, that might rock the boat a little bit. But clearly you're both exemplary in your different in your various fields. So I imagine that helps. You you remember all those drafts that I was telling you about. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's that's how you become worthwhile, right? Mm. By doing all of that hard work. I'm trying to remember what Tony Benn said to me once. He said, um, people should respect experts because if your teeth hurt, you go to a dentist. You don't ask your brother. <laughs> <laughs> it's very true. We are in, in our different ways. We're, we're experts, aren't we, Kate and I? We have given, at least uh, in her case, um, 40 years of her life, in my case, about 30 years of my life to um, writing and theatre. Uh, writing as in prose and writing theatre. Mm. So we have thought about this long and hard. So we we respect one another's points of view. We we know that um, whatever we say is grounded in long experience. Makes complete sense. That's fantastic. Oh, Greg, I could talk to you all day, honestly. Likewise, so, it's been great. Oh, thank you so much for your time. I know how busy you are because the book is coming out. You're doing loads of press and there's so much buzz around it and really exciting. So really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for talking to us. You are me. absolutely welcome. I'm going, to, I'm going to go now to a lovely independent bookshop in Petworth, which is not far from where I live, and sign two copies of The Coming Darkness. Wonderful. And where can people listening follow you on social media? Uh, well, it's my name on Twitter, my name on Facebook. I'm really easy to find. <laughs> That's good. That helps. So thank you so much, Greg. And for people listening, go and follow Greg. Go and order The Coming Darkness because you won't be disappointed. It's a cracking read in a number of different ways. And you can also follow the Red and Berry podcast on social media at Red and Berry podcast, or you can email us at redandberrypodcast at gmail.com. So thank you all for listening. And thank you again, Greg. It's been a wonderful conversation and we'll be back very soon. Frankie, you've been great. Oh, very kind. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Hi, folks. This is Tony Black, co-host and producer of Between the Notes, a podcast all about the music of film and television. Myself and co-host Sean Wilson delve into a range of topics including brand new film score releases. So four, four notes can, can communicate the primal vengeance and rage of Robert Pattinson's, uh, Pattinson's I should say, uh, interpretation of, um, <laughs> yeah, I've heard of, that a of, of, of Batman. Yeah. Focuses on specific composers such as Ennio Morricone. Just to put this in context, Gwyneth Paltrow got an Oscar before Ennio Morricone did. I mean, how does that... <laughs> How, how, how does that work? And special episodes focusing on topics like adventure movie scores. I think that principle is consistent all the way through Conan because it has to be, because it, it is an opera in which the music is the dialogue. We're available on all podcast platforms and on social media at Between Notes Pod on Twitter and Facebook. So please subscribe, get in touch, and join us to discuss the sounds of cinema and television. Between the Notes. Between the Notes.